Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Jay Cost of The Weekly Standard. Jay is the author of a new book titled A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. Jay's previous title from 2012 had a similarly uplifting and optimistic theme. It was titled Spoiled Rotten, How the Politics of Patronage Corrupted the Once Noble Democratic Party and Now Threatens the American Republic. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. So first question is, your book starts out really at the origin of our republic, uh, so sort of our nascent loose confederation of states, and there is a battle between Hamilton and Madison for the shape that our government will ultimately take. Describe the two sides of their battle and tell us who won. That's a great That's a great first question. Um well, you know, America in the 1780s is not a time, you know, we spent, everybody knows about America in the 1960s, for instance, right? Everybody knows about America in the 1930s. America in the ni- 1780s was a very, it was a country under a great deal of duress. Um, you know, the the Articles of Confederation had basically fallen apart and it, it wasn't, it was, you know, society was coming apart at the seams. Um, you know, you for instance, there was actual violence between their debtors and creditors were actually in open warfare in Massachusetts, for instance. That's what Shays Rebellion was. And so the new government was an effort to centralize power um, to an extent that would bring, bring order, try and impose some order. Um, and that is really the foundation of the uh, – weirdly enough, that's the foundation of the conflict between Madison and Hamilton. The, though the two agreed about uh, – the the, the 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 new government and it, it being better than the Articles of Confederation. There were very deep disagreements about the nature and shape of the new government. Madison and, and you can if you read I like to juxtapose the tenth Federalist with the eleventh Federalist. The tenth Federalist is Madison's famous treatise on the violence of faction. And the eleventh Federalist is Hamilton going on about actually uh, uh, the, an, a grand American system of industry and commerce that could unite the country in the shared goal of economic growth. And so they had divergent ideas even when they were on the same side. Um, and it, it, it gets down to this: that Madison thought that the government, as designed, had to be very precise. That the the way that you preserve a republican form of government, small r republican form of government, is through institutions. Right, a republic is a government that governs on behalf of the public interest rather than on behalf of private interests or factions, as Madison called it. And that is a very difficult thing to achieve in, in practice because. Human beings are selfish. So if you take a whole collection of human beings, you're just going to have a whole collection of selfish selfish interests. And Madison, in his study of history, had observed time and again that Republican governments tended to fall apart for that reason. So what do you do? Madison's solution was institutional design. The institutions of government, if they were developed in just a precise way, could, as to borrow a phrase from him, balance and check one one another. Madison called it ambition counteracting ambition. This is one of the reasons why our system is such a clunky – I mean our system often seems like it's a bit of a Rube Goldberg device. You know, European-style democracies are much more straightforward than our own. Um, but this was Madison's approach. We need to design the institutions of government very carefully. And implicit within that argument is this idea that 
the institutions of government have to be designed to handle the powers that we give them. And so this points to the breakdown in relations with Hamilton. The Constitution, as it was ratified, and importantly, as it was presented to the ratification delegates in the states, especially in Virginia and New York, the ratification debates in both states was, it was very heated, and the final vote in Virginia was very close. And, you know, Madison made promises to the delegates at that convention that this is not an unlimited grant of governmental power. We have designed it in a precise manner so that government will not grow beyond the structures that we have created. And Hamilton gets in as Secretary of Treasury in, in 1789, and he proposes a Bank of the United States, a federally chartered institution. And Madison was aghast at this and had pointed out correctly that the Constitutional Convention had taken up the issue of, a, of whether or not the federal government could have a chartering authority, and, and they would voted it down. And Hamilton in Washington decided that it was essential to the public credit um, that a bank be you know created nonetheless. And so what's the problem with this from the perspective of corruption? Well, return to Madison's broader theory which is that institutions have to be designed just so. And that means the powers that we give the government must fit the institutions created to manage the power. And what Hamilton was effectively proposing with the bank was expanding the power of the government beyond the original grant. And, the, and furthermore, expanding it beyond the vision of those institutions. Right, And that is the problem. That is why the subtitle of my book is Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. And we see this happen again and again. A major problem results of some sort of public crisis, and they, they, they elect to expand the authority of the government without due consideration for whether or not the institutions that were created in 1787 could handle those powers responsibly. My argument is that they, they cannot. They were never man, meant to handle such power, and they behave irresponsibly. They behave in what Madison would call a factional way. They favor narrow groups of interest rather than the public at large. I understand that as political corruption. Let's be really clear in defining what you mean by corruption because your book is not about illicit or illegal activities, or maybe it's illicit but not illegal activities. Let's, uh, if, if you would – Define corruption for our readers because this isn't about, you know, Al Sharpton not paying the IRS. This is about actually within the system legal graft. Right. That's right. Um, and I make that point early on in the book. It's sort of, you know, you, it's kind of a take it or leave it proposition with the book. But I mean, which none of that is to say that illegal graft is not corruption. It, I, I believe it is. But I, I think that that is too narrow a definition. And I think that excludes a lot of practices that are best understood as corruption. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm a, I'm a member of con Congress and I I write a piece of legislation, an appropriation for for some interest or company, and they send me fifty thousand dollars that I put in my freezer. That's a bribe, right? That's that's illegal, you know. Uh, William Jefferson, congressman from Louisiana, basically did, did something like that and got sent to the slammer. That's illegal. He was putting himself ahead of the public good. 
That's illegal. But now let's say I'm a congressman and I write a favorable piece of legislation and the and uh, the, 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 the beneficiaries write me a big old campaign check, $5,000 from their political action committee. And then their, their affiliates, their affiliated PACs write me $5,000 checks and all the individuals write me $5,000 checks. And I become good friends with their lobbyists, and I can call them up anytime and ask them a question about, you know, what should I do about this, that, or the other. And then I retire from politics after a nice long career, and then I go and I work as a lobbyist for them, and I make a seven-figure salary. To me, that's essentially the same thing. One is illegal, the other is not. But both of them are p putting your own interests, your own personal gain, right, ahead of the public good. And that, in the latter case, everything per perfectly legal, but what's going on? I'm collecting campaign contributions. I'm securing my I am using public policy in other words to secure my own reelection and then I'm using public policy to make sure I have a nice cushy gig on K Street when I leave the government. To me it's all one and the same. And that is sort of the idea behind the book and that's why I lean very heavily on Madison and this idea of factionalism. A faction is a group with an interest adverse to the common public good or to individual rights. And Madison said the violence of faction occurs when government is partial to factions at the expense of the public interest. And I think when you broaden your perspective on what corruption actually is and you think of it as being more than just a perp walk, you begin to you begin to sort of get a sense of corruption as an institution within the government. It's an enduring feature. It's always there. It ebbs and it flows. Sometimes it's more of a problem, sometimes it's less of a problem, but to just think of it in terms of legality, you miss a lot of the story. And one of the reasons that I wanted you to define it is because, as we've seen throughout history, words have serious meaning and serious consequences. And so if we broaden our definition of political corruption to the way that you define it, that basically describes business as usual in Washington today, which is kind of an amazing thing when you step back and think about it. Uh, and related to that, though, the corruption that we see today is not something new. So for those who think that the 19th century was sort of a panacea in government, leave aside the Civil War and other problems that we had, uh, you write in depth about two interesting findings. One is the Cameron machine and political machine, and the other is the findings in the Jay report, where there were actually public servants making the equivalent of a million dollars per year back in the 1870s. Talk about these two instances, because I think it crystallizes the fact that this corruption has spread from the time of that first national bank. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, so the broader story to tell here is this idea that you know corruption comes from alterations in the in the you know the Madisonian system is like a carefully calibrated Swiss watch. Right. You make any adjustments to it without really thinking it through how to, it's going to affect the rest of the system down the line. You're gonna you're gonna unbalance it. You're gonna it's not gonna work properly. It's not gonna keep the right time. And in that case, it's gonna favor corruption. Corruption. Um, and so we see that, for instance, so let's talk about the Cameron machine. And the context here is that the Hamilton's bank was an innovation, right? The government, and it was sort of the first step in an unending effort for the government to promote the national economy. And the 19th century would see an enormous expansion in federal power as the government tried to develop the domestic economy. It was, one of the consistent themes of, of that century was the rise of the power of the state. We don't usually think of it that way, especially 
especially conservatives, we, we tend to think of the power of the state in terms of the regulatory regime, which came in the 20th century. But the 19th century saw the rise of the state as a, as a promote, promoter of economic growth. This is something that the framers, you know, it's not, you know, you, you have to look beyond the legality, you know, whether or not the Constitution actually permits that or doesn't, and think more broadly about whether or not they saw that coming and did they build institutions to make sure it was done well. And the answer to both questions is no. You know, 1787 was right on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution, but it was still a pre-industrial period in our nation's history. And they did not build institutions anticipating the Industrial Revolution or the idea that the federal government should play a part in encouraging it. So, But the federal government does. So we get something like a Bank of the United States. We start getting the federal support subsidies for railroads. We start getting, for instance, um, protective tariffs. Okay, And all of these regimes are sort of advertised, and the intention behind them is a way to develop the economy. The problem is, is that they're, they're never done very well. They're done in ways that benefit interest groups or what we today would think of as interest groups rather than the public at large. And what they did in the, in the 19th century was create political machines. Political machines rose up in large part, or they persisted, especially toward the end of the 19th century, as machines that would act as a mediator between businesses that derived benefits from the government and the government itself. So take the Cameron, Cameron machine – and especially the, the, the machine in Pennsylvania under uh, Cameron's successor, Matt, Matthew Quay. He was basically the middleman between businesses and federal policy. So if a business wanted you know, favorable tax policy, they would get in touch with Matt Quay, who was a senator, and they say, we want this tariff, we want this, this little piece of the tariff written in this way. Quay would make it happen. And the business, in turn, would contribute and help fund Quay's political machine, which came to dominate the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So, which was also useful because Pennsylvania was an industrial state, so a lot of times you would need, you know, we need the state government to do this, that, or the other for us. So we're going to go see Matt Quay. He'll make it happen, and we'll write him a check. And all through the North... Most of the northern states had a machine of this sort one way or another. There was Nelson Aldrich in Rhode Island. There was Tom Platt in, in, uh, in New York. There was Matt Quay in Pennsylvania. There was John Spooner in um, uh, 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 Wisconsin. There was Allison in Iowa. They were all over the place. These guys who basically acted as the middleman. And, and they abused this power. This power to develop the domestic economy, they abused that power. They did not use that power for the public interest at large. They used that power for their friends in business and in return received campaign contributions and other sorts of remuneration to develop and build and maintain their political machines. That naturally leads to the question of, in your book, you end up cataloging the various eras of quote-unquote reform is made in government, but inevitably government always grows. And as government grows and the republic grows, corruption grows at least likely proportionately, maybe disproportionately. So the question is, if we look back at the 19th century, for example, was there both less corruption on an absolute and relative level? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that uh, corruption in the 19th century looks more shocking to contemporary sensibilities. 
Um, you know, for instance, they were rogues. Quay was a rogue, you know. Um, you know, I, I tell a story at the beginning of the book about how he got hauled in before an investigative investigative committee and they asked him are you specu are, you know congress was debating a new sugar tariff and they asked him are you speculating in sugar while you're de debating this tariff and he said yeah i am and i'm gonna keep doing it nobody can stop me i mean there was just sort of this roguish quality i mean you look at guys like aldrich and boys penrose from pennsylvania and i mean you just run down the line they, they were they were larger than life corrupt political bosses they don't exist anymore. So when we look back at them, they look like they look very anachronistic. And so we're inclined to say, oh, well, it was clearly much worse then. But I don't think it was. I think it's much worse now. I think for a couple reasons. First of all, the power of government has expanded. Not just it's not just the government can do more to develop the economy. It's that the government now also has acquired in the 20th century, really acquired two additional authorities that again this gets back to this idea the framers never intended intended this and they didn't build institutions to exercise the power responsibly so the 19th century you see the power to develop the domestic economy in the 20th century you really begin to see the power to regulate it even down to the most minute aspects and then you also see in the 20th century the provision of social welfare. So these are new avenues for political corruption to spring up, and that's exactly what happened. So it's actually – the government is doing more, and so therefore there are more opportunities for it to be corrupt. But there's another dimension to this is that – and this is one of the things that I, I sort of discovered as I was writing about corruption – is that it gets worse – over time unless it is being actively fought back. Corruption is like cancer or wood rot. If a politician does something that he really shouldn't be doing and he gets away with it, and in fact he doesn't suffer any rebuke from it, he's going to do it again. And not only is he going to do it again, he's going to try and do a little bit more. And his colleagues in Congress will look and say, huh, you know, I, I could do that and, I, and, and I'm going to try it. And they get away with it, and then they do a little more, and then down the line it goes. And I think the problem that we have today, and this is this is sort of where I think I flip the idea on its head. People think the 19th century was so awful, but I would I think it was better in terms of corruption than today. Is that corruption today? It, it has a veneer of of respectability to it. You know, you talk to people in Washington, and they'll say it's just the way things are done. There's no roguish characters like Matt Quay or Simon Cameron, you know, these sort of guys who were smoking cigars and just kind of rogues. Everybody wears fine suits and very loyally, and there's, there's very regular, organized processes. We call it the interest group society, is what we call it, or what political scientists call it. It's just the way things are done. You know, and people people who are participate in it don't think they're doing anything inappropriate. But the reality is, is that it is very inappropriate. The rules of the game themselves are corrupt, and so people who follow the rules and who think well of themselves for following the rules and aren't doing anything wrong or illegal, you know, are nevertheless behave participating in a system that systematically favors special interests over the public good. And and that, you know, the second half of my book, I look at five main pieces of public policy. I look at farm subsidies, I look at the pork barrel, I look at Medicare, corporate taxes, and regulation. And in every policy area, you see the same thing. It's systematic. It, it's, it's a systematic, endemic problem of 
this government favors special interest groups that have the resources to lobby it and ply it with money, campaign money, lobbying money, revolving door money, and they do so even at the expense of the public good. And it happens on a massive scale today, the likes of which dwarf the misbehavior of the 19th century political bosses. To sort of synthesize that, we went from basically individuals sort of following the letter of the law, but definitely not following the spirit of the law egregiously, to the legitimization of egregiously not following the spirit of the law. Is that right? That's a perfect way to put it. I mean, I'll give you an example just to sort of appreciate how absurd all of this is, right? Like, let's, let's, say, let's say I'm a federal judge, okay? And a Fortune 500 company is sitting before me, and they – you know, they write me a 50, you know, and I'm going to hear a case that has to do with, with their fate. And they write me a $50,000 check and I deposit it in my bank account. It gets discovered. I would be kicked off the bench. You know, I would be subject to all, I would be subject to impeachment, disbarment, maybe even criminal, criminal prosecution. You can't do that. But what if I'm a member of Congress and I'm on a sub subcommittee that oversees regulatory policy that has to do with that very same Fortune 500 company, and the decisions I make will cost them or net them billions of dollars. And they write me campaign contributions, and they, you know, they write me checks. You know, five thousand dollars here, five thousand dollars there, every cycle. You know, a bunch of times from a bunch of different sources, and then they, you know. Their lobbyist calls me up every day to check in on how I'm doing and can we answer any questions for you and what do you want to know? And then when I, I know when I retire, I can go work for them. That if, I, if you did that on the federal bench, you'd be disbarred. If you did that in Congress, you would be promoted. You would be successful because that's the way things are done in co Congress. You know, In other words, conflict of interest is really the problem. That's corruption in a nutshell. There's a conflict of interest between some private group and the public at large. And Congress has has accepted and institutionalized conflicts of interest. Conflict of interest is at the essence of the way politics in the United States Congress is done now. Let's dive into one more really specific example that I think really synthesizes how there's sort of nothing new under the sun, although the degrees to which the corruption has extended today simply dwarf everything before it in the history of the republic. So you start the book with the first national bank, and you sort of end the book with the GSEs. Speak a little bit about the similarities between those two institutions. It's something that I had not thought about but I think it's an exceptional point that these GSEs are effectively what the First National Bank was on steroids. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there's a couple there's a couple ways to look at this, right? I mean, the the the, the First National Bank. You know, Madison's big problem with it was we didn't we never planned to to create a national bank. Hamilton, you know, you imagine the conversation, the debate. We never created. We never thought we would do that. We we debated it. Madison himself, I, 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 I would guess, the vote, the actual roll call in the convention wasn't taken, but there was a vote on whether or not the federal government could charter private corporations, and the vote lost. I'm guessing Madison voted in favor of it. Uh because Madison, I, that that's the sort of policy that that he would have supported, all else being equal. But all else was not equal, right? We did not build institutions to manage a GSE like the First Bank successfully, right? And what did you see with the First Bank, right? We it, it's created by Congress, and Congress simply, 
and this is the point, Congress lacked the capacity to keep the GSE under control. And what happens? Well, Jefferson and Madison are good friends with the clerk of the, of the first clerk of the House of Representatives, and he, and he keeps a list. Here are the members of Congress who own bank shares, and here are the members of Congress who have insider information and have been supplied insider information by the bank itself. And Jefferson writes to Washington and says, look, if there was an honest up or down vote on the bank itself, it would lose. The only reason it is still around is because enough members of Congress have been bought off. And that's the problem with it, right? That was the problem with the bank, is that it turned around, it was created by the government, but then it turned around to lobby it. This is Madison, in a letter to Jefferson, he wrote, um, talked about the, the, the shareholders of the bank. They, they called them stock jobbers. He writes, the stock jobbers will become the Praetorian band of the government, at once its tool and its tyrant, bribed by its largesses and overawing it by clamors and combinations. And what, it, what he means by that is that the government created the bank, and the government made the bank, the, the people who held bank shares were better off because of because of the government's action. And they turned around and they used some of the benefits they gave, gave it back to members of Congress effectively to buy them off. And we, so let's go, that's sort of the context to think about Fannie and Freddie and how, uh, you're right, history repeats itself. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are similar institutions. They're private institutions with public charters. And they have the implicit bank backing of the United States government. Investors in Fannie and Freddie believed that if they got into trouble, the federal government would bail them out. And as it turned out, they were correct in that belief. And that enabled the GSEs, that enabled Fannie and Freddie to borrow money at substantially lower rates and effectively corner the secondary mortgage market, right? Mortgages are originated at your local bank, but then they would be sold to Fannie and Freddie that would then bundle them into investment vehicles and sell them on the open market. And they were able to do this at a cut rate price because of this federal subsidy, which the, at around 2000, the Congressional Budget Office ends up valuing the subsidy at, at around $10 billion. And I actually think they up, upgraded it to $20 billion, right? But what the CBO found, and this is what things is really interesting, is that – so that's the federal subsidy. That's the benefit to Fannie and Freddie for their public charter. But they only turned a portion of the subsidy – back over to the consumers in the form of lower mortgage rates. They kept the rest of it for themselves. And so the executives of Fannie and Freddie were able to collect jaw-droppingly large bonuses. But more importantly, for the purposes of my story about corruption, they took all it took was just a tiny fraction of this $10 billion subsidy. Plow it back into the political process, right? through campaign contributions, through an extensive lobbying network, through strategic charitable giving. Oh, you know, this member of Cong Congress is on the Financial Services Committee, and his mother runs some affordable housing charity, so we're going to donate tens of thousands of dollars to her. You know, that buys you a friend for life. They would open offices, regional offices in states and congressional districts, and they would hire the relatives and friends of members of Congress. They were able to do all of this because of their federal subsidy. And what did that what did all of this lobbying buy them? It bought them freedom to do whatever the heck they wanted. And what they wanted to do was, you know, basically 
if they were any other any other company would have been ruined for that enron they had they were using this is the most amazing thing to me about fannie mae and freddie mac after the enron accounting scandal came out freddie mac had an independent outside auditor look at its books because they were using uh, they were using Arthur Anderson as their auditor, and it came back that Fannie and Freddie were in disastrous shape financially, or at least their books were disastrous, and and all of the sort of stuff that Enron was doing, um, you know, Fannie and Freddie were doing a lot of that as well. Uh, and, th- and and look what happened in the wake of the Enron scandal, right? We got you know we got regulatory reform, um, we we got Sarbanes Oxley, right? After Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it comes out that they have a bunch of accounting problems too. What happens? Nothing happens. Nothing happens because of the lobbying operation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were able effectively to buy members of Congress into leaving them alone. And not only not only that, but they turn around a couple years later and they start diving heavily into uh, the subprime mortgage market, which was a very dangerous thing for them to do. And they were not, you know, they were not clear with their investors about how heavily involved they were in that market. So it wasn't just that nothing happened. It's that is that they went out, they turned around in response to that that crisis with the accounting crisis and they created another crisis that was even worse. And all of that was possible because they had effectively purchased the Congress. It gets back exactly to what Madison said, right? They the members of Congress were bribed bribed in effect by by Fannie and Freddie, and they were aw- overawed by it. They simply could not resist it. That, to me, is how political corruption relates intimately to big government. Big government favors some interest or group that draws a benefit from the government's stimulation, and they take a portion of that benefit they receive from the government and plow it back into the political system to make sure the benefit streams continue, even if it's bad for the country at large. And you can tell the same story in in my book. I tell the same story about farm subsidies and about Medicare and about corporate taxation. It's the same story again and again. These interest groups that derive some financial gain from federal policy will do everything they can to make sure that those policies continue, and Congress lacks the capacity to to resist their clamors. In light of this ongoing growth in government seemingly never-ending with maybe minimal stalls a couple of times in our history, how is it, the de- playing devil's advocate here, how is it that living standards are higher than they've ever been in world history, and Theoretically, you know, we've had an amazing run as a republic up to this point, even with all of this corruption. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, and and it's a fa- it's a fair question too. You know, Al- that and that's sort of what Alexander Hamilton sort of made that point at at, at one point. Said, uh, you know, in effect, if the government has to bribe legislators to do what they should be doing anyway, you know, so he just said about the British Constitution. In effect, look, if the king has got to bribe members of parliament to get them to do what they should do anyway, then thank goodness he can bribe them. I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a point. Um, but you know, I my response to that is, for instance, and you know, it, it just you think, for instance, think about you know the Industrial Revolution. You say, oh, okay, well, the Industrial Revolution was great for this country, and we're all better off for it. Okay, yeah, we're all better off for it today. 
But if you were a small farmer in western Kansas in the 1880s, you were not better off. And you were under the thumb of, of effectively a massive log roll between financial interests, industrial interests, industrial workers, and Civil War veterans in the North and the Midwest. And you were on the losing end. And you didn't just lose. You were ruined, you know. In, in God we trust, in Kansas we bust. I mean, that was their problem. It wasn't just, you know, the, it was hard to farm out there. It was government monetary policy was systematically tilted toward the northeastern financial class rather than poor farmers in the south and west. Same with the tariff policy. Same with the regulatory policy. The federal government would consistently, consistently intervene and prevent states from regulating railroad monopolies, and in no small part because railroad monopolies were very good at effectively bribing members of Congress to make sure that their monopolies would persist. And so that, to me, is 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 really part of the story here is that we if we take a broad enough picture we see yes things have improved and my point though is that the public policy in support of industrial development for instance okay we can sort of argue that it's good for the government it was good that the government got involved in industrial development in the 19th century my point is that the way they went about doing it was terrible for large groups of people, it was miserable, awful for the American farmer. And by the way, at that point in time, the American farmer was a majority of the workforce. Turn ahead to the present day. You know, I mean, you think about it. We are prosperous. Yes, we're very prosperous. But, you know, what we're talking about here, these these policies that I discuss in the second half of the book, the contemporary policies, you know, you add up the figures from what I would define as corruption in terms of just their effects on the budget. You know, we're we're upwards of a hundred billion dollars. And if we think about the economic inefficiencies that these policies create, like take tax Take corporate tax expenditures, for instance. You know that that's a you know th those create tax shelters. People invest in vehicles simply for the tax benefits they get they gain, rather than you know this is productive for the economy as a whole. So you know it's not just they have a they have a first order cost on the on the federal budget, but there are second order costs as well. You know by diminishing economic growth, in the maldistribution of resources is what we're talking about. So we're probably talking beyond hundreds of billions of dollars, right? We're talking about lo lost economic growth. And, you know, is this something we can really afford? I mean, what's the budget deficit this year? I mean, I know the debt is $18 trillion, but, you know, everybody in Washington, D.C. is high-fiving themselves this year because they've reduced the budget deficit to $450 billion. And it seems to me we're running a pretty massive structural budget deficit every year, and if you believe CBO, and I do, it's going to get worse. So is this something we can really afford? You know, can we really afford to be wasting hundreds of billions of dollars in sort of unjustifiable, you know, inflated reimbursement rates in Medicare, in corporate tax preferences, in farm subsidies, in the pork barrel? Can we really afford this uh, with, you know, the, the strains on our resources and pers persistently disappointing economic growth? I mean, I think that's part that gets back to the, the heart of sort of the nature of corruption, right? And to sort of bring our conversation full circle. Madison thought that it was just inevitable, right? Because men are selfish and, and corruption is just going to happen. And the question is whether or not it's contained to a tolerable degree. I think today, I wrote this book in the title of the book, A Republic No More, 
my interpretation of it is that it has become intolerable. It wastes far too much money. It diverts far too much of our public servants spend far too much time thinking about these sort of narrow, quotidian ways to pay each other off than the big problems that confront us. And it undermines faith in government. I mean, how many... You know, how many people in this audience want to say, oh, the government favors special interests over the common interests? Everybody says amen, right? But that's that's not what we swear fidelity to, the Declaration of Independence, that government is created to to serve the public good. That And that's the essence of Republican government, and it's a foundational principle of democracy. How long can a democracy sustain itself if people believe that the government doesn't work on their behalf? Because if you believe that, if you believe that the government really is just there to favor the special interests, then what's the point in voting? And if people aren't voting, then we don't have a democracy anymore. So corruption has – so we're talking like third and fourth order effects to corruption now. Like I said, I think a really good metaphor for understanding corruption is is, is cancer or wood rot. It, it works its way. If it is not actively being fought back, actively being challenged and thwarted, it works its way in, through the entirety of the body politic, and it can destroy it. You write in the book that – in order to sort of fix all of this, we either need to narrow our ambitions or redesign government, which I think you would agree probably also means that the culture needs to change and the culture needs to be willing to accept those changes and therefore push political actions to make them a reality. To that end, you say that a mugwump moment, I'm quoting <laughs> right. there, might be the answer. What is a mugwump moment and how do you see us fixing this problem that we've created since the start of the republic? Right. That's a great question. Um, well, you know, the bigger the bigger issue here is that we, you know, we don't take and have not taken institutional design seriously, as you alluded to, right? Is this sort of idea that the institutions of government were act man supposed to manage powers that were much smaller in scope. So a Madisonian solution uh, would be to redesign the government to make sure that its institutions are competent to handle the powers it's been given. In other words, we need to update checks and balances, right, to match these new expansive powers. Or we need to draw the powers down, back down, and send them back to the states and to individuals. And and the sort of the point that I make in, in at the end of the book is that, you know, expecting a resolution like that is just Un unlikely, you know. I mean, we are as a country split almost 50-50 down the middle about whether or not we should have more or less government. So there's not going to be any hope of a consensus on uh, how to redesign our system from a Madisonian perspective. Do we make the inst do we improve the institutions? Do we update them to fit the powers, or do we scale the powers down? I don't see any resolution to that conflict anytime soon. So. But that's not the first time the body politic has been divided almost intractably on the main question of the day. It happened before in the wake of the Civil War, the two sides, the, the Democrats and Republicans, hated each other even more than left and right hate each other today. And yet there was this movement of reformers that were able to put aside their main differences, the mugwumps. There were Democrats and Republicans um, who had different views on pressing matters like the tariff, for instance. They, you know... 
the tariff was the big issue of that day, and and said, well, hey, look, we, we can't agree on the big stuff, but maybe we can come together on the little stuff, and maybe we can make some reforms that wouldn't revolutionize the system, but at least it would improve it for the time being. And that's sort of what I, and they they called themselves the Mugwumps. That's who they were. So, you know, and Grover Cleveland was their candidate of choice, for instance, in 1884. Uh, you know, if you've ever read uh, the autobiography of Henry Adams, he was sort of in the Mugwump movement. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's father would have been in the Mugwumps. And, you know, their attitude was, look, we're not going to come together and agree on things like the tariff for industrial regulation. But how about civil service reform? Maybe we can agree on civil service reform, a smaller issue, but an important one. And they did. And they, uh, you know, the pressure, the Mugwumps were more of an elitist movement, but they laid the intellectual foundation that ultimately resulted in civil service reform that destroyed the patronage regime of the, of the 19th century. And I sort of think that maybe there's a possibility there, that the left and the right, we disagree pretty vehemently about whether government should grow or shrink. But I, I also think most of us find farm subsidies pretty offensive. You know, I think most of us think that the way, you know, Fortune 500 companies not only pay nothing in corporate taxes, um, you know, but they get big tax refunds. I think we find that offensive. We might disagree about what to do about it. You know, we, you know, conservatives will argue we should get rid of the corporate tax altogether. Liberals will argue that, you know, we shouldn't, we should raise it. But, you know, maybe we could put that aside and say, look, Whatever rate it is should be fair and applied impartially across the board. In other words, you, you put aside the question of more government or less government and lower your sights a little bit. Maybe you can come up with some some reforms that they're not going to be revolutionary. They're not going to change things. They're not going to be game changers. But you know, they're not going to end special interest politics, but maybe they can slow it down a little bit. Maybe they can make it a little more inconvenient and harass the special interests and harass members of Congress who would otherwise curry favor with them. And sort of a more practical approach. And at the end of the book, I just sort of point in that direction. Um, in this week's edition of the Weekly Standard, I have an article that goes into more detail on that. And then um, in the spring edition of National Affairs, I have a piece that goes into even a little bit more detail about more narrow stuff. Maybe you could build a left-right coalition to really try and deal with um, you know, stuff that, again, won't, won't revolutionize things, but maybe just kind of just mitigate the problems that corruption creates. I think we could all do a lot worse than having Grover Cleveland or a Grover Cleveland-like leader in the White House in 2016. Yeah, you know, and it just goes to show, by the way, you know, the book is called A Republic No More, so make no mistake, it's not it's not a sunny jaunt through good times, you know. Um, it's it's a book, it's it's a tough book, you know. I, I, I don't, and I don't pull punches, you know. But, you know, like I said, things have been bad in the past. Things were pretty bad when Grover Cleveland, in Grover Cleveland's day and age, and yet, you know, we still got a guy like him elected president, which is, which I think, should give us hope, you know, things look, I'll put it this way, you know, in the 1870s, the patronage regime looked like it wasn't going to be overcome. And it you never thought you could get, you know, in the middle of Ulysses S. Grant term, I mean, it looked like everything we were done. You know, and then a decade later, you get rid of patronage and you get a guy like Grover Cleveland who had fought Tammany Hall uh, and who wanted, you know, sensible tariff reform to sock it to the special interests. You know, you get him in the White House and then and then you get him in again. I mean, that says something about the capacity, you know, for reform and why despair 
shouldn't be the message of this book. You know, the message of this book is, you know, it sort of refers to that old, it's probably apocryphal, but the old story of Benjamin Franklin being asked about the, after the constitution, well, doctor, what have you given us a Republic or a monarchy? And Franklin said, uh, we've given you a Republic, madam, if you can keep it. And, you know, I argue that we haven't, we have been able to keep it, but that doesn't mean we can't go and try and get it back. The name of the book is A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption, and we've been speaking with its author, Jay Cost. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.